Amen. Hey, glad that you're here tonight. And as we kind of launch into a brand new series, I want you to, to think back to a time. Have you ever noticed something that you never noticed? Huh? Yeah, have you ever like became aware of something that maybe you didn't notice overtly at first and then you kind of became aware of it? I was in San Diego a few years ago at this the body exhibit. Anyone ever heard of that? And it was there for like a couple years and you actually got to see the human body, the insides. They had done all this kind of stuff and cadavers and, and it was crazy. You begin to think about all the arteries and veins and capillaries in your body that you have about a gallon and a half of blood circulating through your body right now. How many of you are breathing? Good, okay, so you have that happening right now. And if you were to take all of those out and lay them end to end, it would kind of almost get close to 60,000 miles worth of circulatory system in your body that you had no idea about 30 seconds ago before I started talking about it because you, didn't, you weren't aware of it. And we think of photosynthesis, right? And green plants taking light, beginning to make things out of them and producing, taking carbon dioxide and making oxygen out of it and nutrition for themselves. And we don't see it, yet we know it because we studied it in seventh grade science and we learned about it. How many of you have ever been to a Broadway play before? Maybe not on Broadway, but maybe at Centennial Hall, you've been to a play, but here's what you begin to see is the play takes place and yet you don't see all the stagehands and the lighting crew and the curtain crew and everything that's happening with changing of outfits and all that stuff going on behind the scenes, what you begin to notice is the things you don't notice. And I want you to keep that in mind as we start this series in the book of Esther because what you're gonna find is you're gonna begin to notice things that were not overtly noticeable. In fact, what's interesting about the book of Esther, it's the only book in the entire Bible where God is not mentioned by name. It's fascinating. God's not even mentioned in the whole entire book, all 10 chapters. There's alluded to and there's some, uh, some inferences and stuff like that, but his name is not directly mentioned. The only book in the entire Bible that's like that. And yet what you begin to see is what you don't notice you begin to notice as you go throughout the the book. And so the next five weeks, we're gonna kind of take our time going through this, working our way through the story, because I think it has some relevance for us to wrestle with today. Now, if I had to sum up the book of Esther in six words, I would say, Game of Thrones without the dragons. Okay. Now, if you don't know what Game of Thrones is, it's HBO show, it's pretty graphic, it's kings and queens, and here's what Esther entails. It's about kings and queens and politics, elaborate wealth and hidden agendas and hidden motives. It's about death, lots of impaling, trickery, good, evil, involves sex, power, pride, tragedy, and triumph, and all the while, God is orchestrating things behind the scenes. And tonight, you're going to see God in the background of this entire story that's set in the Persian Empire about 480 BC. Now, the Persian Empire came to be as the Babylonian Empire was kind of going off the map. The Persians conquered everything. And they own a ton of land. And they have dominion all across from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Arabian Sea in the north part of Africa. And it's huge. And their empire is massive. And as we begin to look at this story, I think it's imperative to begin to see this hiddenness of God in this story. There's a ton of irony in this story. There's a ton of fanfare and just this pomp and circumstance and kings and queens. And you look at this and it looks like a Hollywood movie. 
But there's things going on behind the scenes that I think are imperative for us. It, it brings relevance to our life because the Jewish people were in dispersion throughout the Persian Empire. And now there's a group that had already gone back to Palestine. In fact, uh, Ezra and Haggai, the, those prophet books, begin to write about those who have gone back. But yet there's a lot of Jews, some scholars believe maybe even up to 15 million that are dispersed throughout this whole kingdom. They haven't gone back to Palestine area, to the, the land that God had called them to. They've stayed kind of assimilated into the culture and into this world. And, and here's what you begin to find is they're a minority in this group. So they're a religious minority living in a society that was dominated by spiritual and moral values that were great odds with them. So when you're a religious minority living in a dominant culture, which has a completely different set of views or values, what do you do? Do you withdraw completely, try to stay pure? Well, that's hard to do. It's almost impossible. Do you try to fit in and keep your views just private to yourself? Well, that doesn't seem right either. So do you protest everything? Do you constantly criticize everything going on around you? Well, that doesn't seem very practical or, or charitable. So what do you do? And I think we'll kind of lean in and learn some things here through the story of Esther. Another reason is this is a, a completely male-dominated society going on in this realm, and yet the heroine of the story is a woman. And right off the bat, that's an amazing reality of considering what's going on in the backdrop. Another reason maybe whether you're male or female is how do you follow God in a morally, spiritually, and culturally ambiguous situations in life where you're kind of flying blind, you don't know what to do. How do you follow God in the midst of that? Well, I think that's kind of what this book begins to wrestle with a little bit, and I think we'll learn some things, that God can work in those situations. Now, we couldn't read all of this book together, but here's my challenge for you this week, is to read the book of Esther. So if you want to find Esther, you open your Bible to Psalms, and then go left, back a couple books. Go past uh, Job, and then you'll find Esther. It's 10 chapters. You can read it in 16 minutes, because I did, Okay. So it's doable to read, and here's the realities. It's going to give you a flavor of the whole story. We're going to unpack chapters one and two tonight and kind of lean into this idea of how do you see God in the background of life, and then maybe some application for us. Of what does this mean for us? And here's what you're beginning to see tonight. I'm going to tell you right now. God is always at work despite appearances. God is always at work even when it doesn't look like he's there or even when it appears that he's even not. He is always at work. So if you picture Esther as a movie, the scene opens and it's a giant banquet, right? King Xerxes, there's five main characters in this whole book. King Xerxes is the one who is large and in charge of the Persian Empire. And he's got this banquet going on. It's three years into his reign. And he's gathered all his officials and all his nobles to be there. And he throws a banquet. How many of you have thrown a party before? Okay, uh, you've thrown a party. How many of you are tired after about five hours in that party? Okay, if it's lasted the entire day, how many of you are excited to get up the next day and do it again? No, right? This scene opens with a 180-day banquet party going on. Six months. What? Yeah, Persians knew how to party, okay? So this is how it opens. Verse 1, Esther chapter 1. 
This is what happened during the time of King Xerxes. He ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from uh, India to Kush. All the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, which is kind of the middle city in the middle of this whole Persian empire. He's there, and it's the citadel. Think of the citadel as kind of like the capital or parliament. It's this realm of power, and so people, lots of people would have been there, and that's where he's ruling from this city. He had invited the military leaders of Persia and the media, the princes, the nobles, the provinces who were all represented. So the whole, the whole empire is represented, and for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So what is this? It's 180 days of a brag fest. That's what's going on. 180 days, I'm going to show you how awesome I am and how powerful I am, and how much money I've got, and how much military might we have, and I'm gonna put it on full display for you all to see. So it's gonna take six months for this to happen. It is an all-inclusive breakfast, brunch, lunch, and dinner brag fest celebration. Three years into his reign. It kinda makes Hollywood parties seem very passe, doesn't it? Six months. Archaeologists have uncovered in the city of Susa uh, some references to King Xerxes, where he referred to himself as this, the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of the great earth. Xerxes certainly didn't struggle with an inferiority complex. He believes that he is large and in charge and sovereign and in control. And yet what you'll begin to see in this story is the invisible ink that's written behind the scenes of the one true person who is truly sovereign and has providence over all. And that's what you're beginning to see throughout this story, this appearances of things that look. So the five main characters, just so you know, King Xerxes, we're hearing about him. Queen Vashti, who's gonna be here in, in chapter one and then she's gone, you never hear from her again. She's the current queen. And then we introduce ourselves to Esther and Mordecai, who are cousins, and to begin to understand they're from a Jewish heritage, yet that's hidden from everyone around them. And then we introduce ourselves to Haman, who is the bad guy of the story. And we won't see him till next week, really. But those are the five main characters of what's going on. So in those days, he says, verse 8 or verse 5, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. Because <clears throat> what do you do when your 180-day party is up? You throw another party for seven days, of course, because anybody would. Um, so King Xerxes opens up the palace for the whole citadel. All the, the people who would be in that realm and in that area, he invites them and says, drink as much as you want. Come on in and see the vastness of our kingdom and understand who I am, he's saying. Another brag fest is what's going on. This would have been a seven-day tailgate party in the most exclusive upscale palace ever known to man at the time. We're talking redneck clientele meets black tie atmosphere. This is what's transpiring. Surely everything will go great. That's sarcasm. Surely something is going to go drastically wrong here. So here's what we read. Verse 9. Queen Vashti is also having a banquet for all the women. So we have all the guys in the party for 187 days now. All the ladies are in another party. Here's what happens. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, duh, that's not in there, that's inferred. 
He was commanded, the seven eunuchs who were in charge of him, list their names, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered this king's command to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Shocker. Then the king becomes furious and burns with anger. So, uh, Mr. King Xerxes, drinking a little bit too much after 187 days, says, uh, I want you all to see my queen. Would you bring her in her crown? Now, we don't know if it was only her crown, but that's my guess. And I think the queen in that moment says, uh-uh, I'm not going to be objectified here. And so she refuses. Well, King Xerxes, who's used to getting his way, and everything goes his way. In fact, every decree he gives is irrevocable even by himself. So what he says goes. And yet there's something that doesn't transpire. And so he gathers his advisors around. He says, what are we going to do? And the advisors say, well, because this was a public display of rebuttal and, and not coming, uh, we're afraid that all the women in the kingdom will rise up. So you've got to get rid of the queen. And so he does. He takes her crown. Queen Vashti's never heard of again. Probably not killed, but banished. Could have been. But that's what begins to transpire in this culture. It's a fascinating look at culture at 480 BC and everything that's going on in the Persian Empire. Now, this is the third year of his reign. This long six-month party plus seven days. Queen is taken out. A couple of years later, he gets into the Persian and Greek War, which you'll read about in history, 300. He gets his butt kicked a little bit, and he walks back to the citadel here in Susa, and the mood is different now. Now, they still have the incredible Persian Empire, and nothing's changed from that end, but he's feeling a little defeated and feeling down in the doldrums because he has no queen to come home to. Sure, he's got a harem, you can read about it. It's probably a thousand strong. But that's not what you want when your leadership is struggling. What you want is someone to walk through the ups and downs of life with, and he's banished Vashti. And so this is when we become introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, this is chapter 2, verse 1, he remembered Vashti and what had transpired there. Then the king's personal attendants come around him and say, look, the king is kind of down in the doldrums. I know what we should do. We should have a Miss Persia contest. And so they create a Miss Persia beauty contest throughout the whole entire land. You can read about it, chapter 2. But this is Miss Persia beauty contest adult version. Okay, this isn't just a beauty pageant. This is something more. In fact, he goes out through the whole land, his attendants go out, and they rally and bring a whole bunch of people back to his harem here, and they put them into a year-long beauty spa day treatment. Anybody wish they could be in a spa treatment for a year? Come on. A year. Not a day, not a weekend. A year to prepare for their one evening with the king. I'm sure they're having dinner and talking. Maybe a few other things. And so there's this weirdness in this story that begins to take place. Very Hollywood, if you will. You could think of it almost like he becomes the bachelor, Persia Empire edition, right? 
And things begin to transpire, and this is what's happening. Now, there we're going to introduce ourselves to Mordecai. Here's verse 5. Now, there in the citadel of Susa, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, who was going to be carried away from exile from Jerusalem when the fall of Judah happened. So this is back in Daniel's day, right? When Daniel is carried away, so was Mordecai. And he's there. Now, there's a remnant that has gone back to Palestine to begin to rebuild the temple. That's what God had commanded when Babylon Empire had vanished. And after their seven, 70 years of captivity, you're to go back. And yet only a remnant went back. And many are still here. And Mordecai is one of those. And, and he's actually just doing what he's been called to do and called to live out. So you know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I, have the, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you good, right? Did you ever read the verses right before that? What you begin to see is the verses right before that, you begin to see this, um, here's what God said to those nations when they were put in captivity way back when Judah was conquered and taken off to the Babylonian Empire. They said, this is what the Lord Almighty says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what's produced, marry and give your sons uh, and, and daughters into marriage. Ask and seek peace and prosperity for the city which you are carried to in exile. Pray for the Lord for it. For, it pros- for if it prospers, you prosper as well. And here we have Mordecai doing what Jeremiah talks about. Being a part of the land and being a part of what's being established and what's going on. And he's part of the citadel. He's worked his way up, so to speak, into this political infrastructure of Persia. And no one knows he's a Jew. And no one knows that Esther's Jewish either. In fact, what happens to Esther is she becomes an orphan. Her mom and dad die, and Mordecai as a cousin brings her in as his own daughter and raises her. So you want to talk about tough beginnings for someone. That's Esther's story. You're in captivity. You're in a foreign land. Both your parents die. You're living with your cousin who's raising you, and they're trying to blend in and not be seen. Esther is orphaned, and she's a young woman of great beauty. And as the story unfolds, she embodies everything that we think will make us happy. She's beautiful. She's she's gonna become rich as the queen because she becomes the next queen. She has sexual charm and charisma, and she has a bunch of servants at her beck and call. That's what begins to transpire in chapter two. From an outsider's glance, just looking at the story, Esther is kind of like Kim Kardashian of the Old Testament. That's what's transpiring. And yet, what God's beginning to do in unseen ways and in hidden ways is to begin to develop her character and to build her bravery in a way that's going to move forward with her and her character and her soul becoming stronger throughout the story. And she is growing into a person who will wield her influence for the good of others beyond herself. And she will be used by God in mighty ways. You may not brazenly see it right now. See, what's different, what's interesting about Esther's story is when you compare it to Daniel's story. Daniel is bold from 13 on. When you read Daniel's story, he's just brazen for God, and he has so much against him, yet he is so bold in his faith. And yet Esther, if you just look at it, sometimes feels like she's just assimilated into the culture, and there's not much bravery there. And here's my hunch. 
we're a whole lot more like Esther than we're like Daniel. And I think we can identify with that. That maybe we're not quite what we wish we are or wish we were. And we're not quite there yet. And here's the beauty is God hasn't given up on Esther, on Mordecai, on the people that are in dispersion throughout the Persian Empire, even though they've disobeyed and they haven't gone back like he said. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't abandoned. He hasn't left. He is still very active within their life. And here's what we see is this story goes on. Esther actually gets chosen into this beauty pageant adult version, and she gets taken into the harem. She's there in the spa day treatment for a year, And here's what's going on. Esther had not revealed, verse 10, her nationality or her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening with her. He had just said, blend in, be a part. She keeps her nationality hidden. She enters into this year-long spa treatment. Again, kind of like the bachelor Persian Empire edition. Her time comes with the king. And she wins him over. In fact, he stops the search. It's done. She becomes the next queen. Here's what you read, verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And so she won his favor and approval more than any of the others that they had brought. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. (laughs) Do you sense a theme here? They love banquets more than we love all-you-can-eat buffets. Okay, so there's banquets all the time. This is the banquet of Esther. Initially, as she becomes the next queen of the Persian Empire next to King Xerxes. Now, kings and queens did not hang out like husbands and wives. That's not how it worked in that culture. As a queen, you sometimes were summoned, but often you were left alone until the king wanted your presence. And if you were to go before the king, well, then if you weren't invited, that could be the end of you. So it's not functioning quite the way you may think it's going to function. This culture is very different. So the end of chapter 2, here's what you'll find. There is a coup attempt on King Xerxes himself. A couple of his guards that are in the citadel that would have been there kind of try to dream up how to overthrow King Xerxes and how to take power. And Mordecai hears about it. And he informs Queen Esther, who then informs the king, who investigates, finds out it to be true, and has these two cards impaled. You will see many impalings in the book of Esther. I told you, it's the Game of Thrones without dragons. They're impaled, and it seems like this deed that Mordecai uncovered goes totally unnoticed, because he's never accommodated He's never given anything. It just seems to be washed under the bridge and unseen. Now, this information that Esther gives may have reinforced her and her status a little bit more with the king. What you're going to see next week in chapter 3 is we're introduced to Haman. He's the fifth character. And Haman becomes this advisor of King Xerxes. And what started as an advisory council, so to speak, that we read about in chapter 1 quickly fades to just Haman himself as the chief advisor to King Xerxes himself. And Haman is just a bad dude. 
He's got bad motives and a bad heart. He serves in the advisory to the king. He gains great wealth and power and even goes rogue to begin to attack the whole nationality of the Jewish people. This is the pre-Holocaust Holocaust that's being set up. And what's going to transpire, that's just to come in the next couple chapters of this book. Now, like I said, it's too hard to go over the whole thing in a week, but I want to encourage you to read it this week. You can do it in 16 minutes. And it will give you a flavor and an understanding of everything that's going to transpire. And as we unpack it, it will begin to take on a new light for you as you read about. In fact, what, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see incredible hiddenness in this story. There's hidden motives. There's hidden agendas. There's hidden conversations. There's hidden parts of people's character that becomes revealed. You're going to see irony after irony as you read the story. So much so that it becomes so significant that it demonstrates that there's always more going on than meets the eye. And no one person has all the things put together or all the control to grasp it. What you begin to see is this. God's control cannot be calculated. God's solution cannot be anticipated. God's plan cannot be thwarted. He's at work behind the scenes because no one person has all the information and no one person has all the control that they think they do. King Xerxes certainly believes that he is sovereign and in control. And what you'll find is he's not at all. Haman has a growing sense of power and a sense of control, and yet he doesn't have the control that he thinks he has. What we're reminded about, friends, is that God is still in the business of the miracles of circumstance, moving behind the scenes in a way that can never be anticipated. God is always at work. Theologians call that God's providence or God's sovereignty, meaning he has ultimate power and authority. Other people may think they have it, but they don't. And what you'll see in kind of the... uh, The written language is people who think they have it, and then the unwritten, invisible ink of the story is God saying, no, no, I've got it. I'm the one who is ultimately in charge, and I will be the one. The unmentioned one is the one who is sovereign, and that's God himself. And he's the one, I believe, that the Jewish people who are in dispersion throughout the Persian Empire are holding on to hope. God, you've got to be the hope because this story doesn't look like it's gonna go well. We've gotta hold on to you, and you'll begin to see that in chapter three, four, and five, as the Jewish people begin to say, God, we need your help, and we're holding on to your hope. Why? Well, the religious minority, in the backdrop of a culture that is diversely different, in counter to everything they value and hold dear, What's interesting is when you live in exile, when you live in a culture that's opposed to your beliefs, you are tempted in two different directions. You're you're tempted to either conform to conformity or into isolation. You're tempted to, to move one of those two ways, that conformity is assimilation in how it works, that you adopt the worldview and the ethics and the way of life that's in the surrounding culture and you experience deep change inside and out. That's what happens. Or you adopt the, the viewpoint of isolation and you hedge yourself into a closed community where the culture at large around you can't get in and affect you, but nor can your culture get out. 
in isolation, you hedge yourself in, and in conformity, you just assimilate, and they are equally paths of ease. It's easy to conform, and you are richly rewarded when you do it. It is also easy to hedge in and protect yourself and to isolate. But here's the problem. Both ways are failures. Assimilation is a failure of nerve. And isolation is a failure of heart. Assimilation fails to resist a culture that's pushing against you and what you value and what you hold dear. And isolation fails to love the people in culture around you. Both ways are failures. And we must learn what we see Mordecai and Esther begin to learn in this story. And that there has to be a third way. It's not about just conforming to culture around you, nor is it about just isolating away from it. There has to be a third way, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of influence and obedience. It's where you live with a godly obedience to what God values, and you have influence into the culture around you, even when you're at odds at times with it. That's the challenge that we have, that as a faithful follower of God, that within a current culture that's maybe direly opposed or against, that you must be among and yet you must be for God and for his best. We will still come across as times as countercultural to what's going on and the way that Jesus lived. He was very much lived this way, but he marched, he was very much among people, yet he marched to the beat of a different drum. He irritated those in establishment, but he welcomed those on the fringe. His love and grace won people over all the time, but yet it was love and grace that pushed people who were in charge at times. We see within Scripture this challenge to live in the tension in between, to not pick one camp or the other, but to be in this world but not of it. Can I just read you some of the verses from the New Testament? The New Testament writers challenge us with this. Romans 12.1, do not conform to the pattern of this world, meaning don't be molded in to the pattern of what goes on around you, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. How do you live in ambiguous times? Well, you've got to lean in and let God transform you to help you know what's the right, best thing to do in the moments that I'm in. I don't want to be conformed into the culture around me. I want to be transformed by God. It's Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17. He says this, My prayer is not that you would take them out of this world, Father, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth, by your word. It's the truth. As you sent me into this world, listen, this is what Jesus says to you and to me. I have sent you into the world. He didn't send you out to be isolated or to hide away from it, to duck and cover. That's never the way of Jesus. But to be an influence and to live obedient to him. Matthew chapter five, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He doesn't call us to duck and cover. We're to have influence into this world even as we are at odds sometimes with it. And that's what you'll begin to see in the story of Esther. This challenge, it's not easy, but I think that's the beauty of this story and the beauty of it maybe for such a time as this, for our moment in history, to say, look, it's not about just conformity and just going into culture and fully assimilating into everything, but nor is it about isolation. 
This is about figuring out and living in the tension in between as Jesus did. And how do you navigate that relationally? You have to be in relationship with him to understand the ebbs and flows of that. See, for Christians, this story is a reminder that God does not abandon his people. No matter how dark their circumstance or how compromised their hearts are or how hidden he may seem to be, he doesn't abandon Hiddenness is the theme throughout this entire book. God's hiddenness is what makes Esther such an appeal to our generation, I believe. For our day, when belief in God feels like it's always resisted or contested, when everything seems to have a natural explanation, when our own experiences often help us feel as if God isn't even present, and yet he is. I love this quote from Caleb uh, Kaltenbach says this, even when God seems silent during your trials, he is still with you as close as ever. Teachers are always silent during the test. God doesn't abandon his people. Here's the key takeaway for the whole entire series, tonight in particular. At times, God may seem silent, but he is never absent. There's times in our culture, isn't it, where it seems like God is absent, feels that way. He's silent, friends. He is never absent. His sovereignty is still over all, and and friends, that's what I have to hold on to. That's what you have to hold on to, is that God is ultimately the one who is sovereign and has full authority and control over all circumstance and everything. Because when you see circumstances on the news and you go, God, that ain't right, That shouldn't happen, even this week. God, how can that be? How can you let that happen? Am I the only one that ever has these thoughts? And yet, what you have to hold on to is God's sovereignty. That in the midst of a broken world and bad people do bad things to good people and bad people, that we can hold on to a sovereignty that God's in charge and nothing is out of his control that he he may not make evil happen, and and it may seem like he just sits by and watches it happen, but he is not absent, and he is not distant. Now, I don't know if you're like me, I like to give suggestions to God sometimes. God, here's what's going on in the world, I don't know, you can fix it this way, this way, this way. Take your choice, I've done a little bit of research I know you created the universe and that you run all things and I'm just Jack. I don't have any other credentials. I know that you like, created planets that are so far away I can't even think about it, and, but um, I think you ought to do this. Anyone else had these imaginary conversations with the Lord? Maybe in your own life, God, this is what's going on. I, I think it would be really helpful if you did this. Just a suggestion. And what we come down to and, and hold our put our hat on, all our hope to is that God knows. In fact, he sees more of the picture than we can even see in that moment. That's his sovereignty. See, we think we see it all, but we don't. We think we have a full grasp on all things, but we don't. We have filters on how we see. That's the reality of it. And what we trust in is that God is always at work. It's like what Jesus said in John 5. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. 
And since we follow a risen Savior, he is still at work, friends. He is still at work. Even when it seems like he's not, he's still at work. In our circumstances and the circumstances of the world around us. What's our job? Well, the challenge becomes, okay, are you going to be a person that just conforms? Are you going to be a person who just isolates and hides? Or are you going to learn to live in the tension and figure out a way with Jesus to navigate another way of living with godly obedience and being faithful and trusting that he can use your life to be an influence? That's what you begin to see in the life of Esther. And we'll see that starting next week of the stuff that begins to transpire. And so I just wanna pray for us as we kind of move into a time of communion, what we begin to see, the hiddenness of this uh, story all throughout Esther, I think oftentimes maybe of the disciples, the night that Jesus is killed and crucified. Can you imagine what they're feeling? Can you imagine what's going on? This, what they think the story's over And yet the reality is it's just the hiddenness of God. He's at work, even then. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And history is changed forever. But we didn't see it. And yet God was at work. That's the beauty of the story. That's the beauty of the gospel story is Jesus is always at work. And so, Father, as we dive into this series, as we begin to look at the life of Esther and this bravery that you're beginning to build within her character and her heart and how you're gonna leverage her life, God, I just admit, I'm a lot more like Esther than I am Daniel. There's a lot of ways that you still wanna grow boldness in me. There's a lot of ways in us that you want to grow your church to be bold, and we're not there yet. Father, in a lot of ways, we confess that there's a lot of ease to just conforming, just assimilating into everything. There's a lot of ease just to kind of isolate and hide away, and yet you didn't call us to do either. You called us to live in the tension and to follow you obediently and to leverage our life with your spirit to make a difference in this world. And so as we take communion and we remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. So we take this juice and this bread, we remember it was his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be a people who live a third way. That we might be your church that shows a way in the darkness of culture that we would be salt and light. So as we worship through communion, as we worship in song here, as we close tonight, Would you stir our hearts afresh and anew of what you have for each one of us? We pray that in Jesus' name.